We're continuing our sermon series looking at the book of Esther. This is the great story of Esther from the Old Testament. Fantastic story, full of tension and drama, filled with a noticeable lack of God. Last week we saw Mordecai, Esther's cousin, come to her and plead that she use her influence as queen of the pagan Persian empire to help their people, the Jews. Haman, who was second in command of the empire, had decided to exterminate all of the Jews. And Mordecai says, you have to do something. Esther's response was, you know, if I go to the king without being summoned, the law states I will be killed unless I find favor with him. But I haven't been invited to see the king in 30 days. And Mordecai, who is not necessarily the sparkling hero of the story, somewhat pushes her, somewhat manipulates her into going anyway. And so she says at the end of chapter 4, you fast for three days and three nights. I and my servants will fast for three days and three nights, and I'll go, and I'll act on your behalf. And if I die, I die. This morning, we get to see Esther act. Tony's going to read chapter 5 for us, and what we're going to see is that she is not the only one who is acting at this point, and then the author is building tension. So as he reads chapter 5, I want you to sit and to feel the tension of these two actors somewhat coming together, and I want you to ask yourself if that tension feels familiar. He's going to read chapter 5, I'll read chapter 6 throughout my sermon. Let's give ear to the reading of God's Word. A reading from Esther chapter 5. On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace, in front of the king's quarters, while the king was sitting on his royal robe inside the throne room opposite the entrance to the palace. And when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court, she won favor in his sight, and he held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. Then Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter, and the king said to her, "'What is it, Queen Esther? What is your request?' It shall be given to you, even to the half of my kingdom. And Esther said, If it please the king, let the king and Haman come today to a feast that I have prepared for the king. Then the king said, Bring Haman quickly, so that we may do as Esther has asked. So the king and Haman came to the feast that Esther had prepared. And as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king said to Esther, What is your wish? It shall be granted you. And what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom." and it shall be fulfilled. Then Esther answered, My wish and my request is, if I have found favor in the sight of the king, and if it please the king to grant my wish and fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come to the feast that I will prepare for them, and tomorrow I will do as the king has said. And Haman went out that day joyful and glad of heart. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, that he neither rose nor trembled before him, he was filled with wrath against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home, and he sent and brought his friends and his wife, Jeresh. And Haman recounted to them the splendor of his riches, the number of his sons, all the promotions with which the king had honored him, and how he had advanced him above the officials and the servants of the king. Then Haman said, Even Queen Esther, let no one but me come with the king to the feast she prepared. And tomorrow also I am invited by her together with the king." Yet all this is worth nothing to me, so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. Then his wife Sheresh and all his friends said to him, Let a gallows fifty cubits high be made, and in the morning tell the king to have Mordecai hanged upon it. Then go joyfully with the king to the feast. This idea pleased Haman, and he had the gallows made. 
This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Pray with me. God, this morning, uh, as we come to you, we ask, as we do each week, that you would send your spirit to us. Help us to see these events not just as distant uh, relics of what has happened in history, but help us to see you at work in them, to see the way that you work amongst the lives of your people, and to believe that you are working in us as well. Help us to see that even though you seem to be silent, oftentimes distant, that you are in fact very present very at work in the mundane things of our lives. Help us to trust you more. I pray that my words would fall to the floor and only your words remain. And I pray this in your son's mighty and powerful name. Amen. When I was in seminary, which is uh, graduate school for pastors, uh, I wasn't really sure what I wanted to do after I graduated. It seemed like each week was something different. I had been a youth director for three years before, so I always thought I could go back and do that if I had to, probably do a little bit better this time. I was a missionary when I was in college. I thought that would be great. I could go be a missionary in Kenya. Uh, I learned in seminary that I enjoyed researching and writing academic papers, and I loved teaching and talking at that level. I thought I could go get a PhD and be a seminary professor. The internship that I had at a church in Charlotte where I was in seminary allowed me to preach to teach Bible studies and to teach Sunday school, things like that. And I thought, you know what, I would love to be a pastor at a church somewhere. It seemed like each week was something new um, until a professor of mine said, have you considered church planting? You kind of get to have your hand in all the different aspects of ministry. Maybe you would enjoy that. And I thought, well, you're wrong because church planting is very difficult. You have to raise a lot of money. You have to move to a place you don't necessarily want to move to. It's very tiring and exhausting. That's not for me. And then the next week, a different professor and a pastor independently suggested that I look at church planting, and I was like, all right, this is messed up. So I went to the pastor who was doing my internship at the church, and I said, hey, here's what's going on, here's what what I'm thinking, and I really don't necessarily want to do this. And he said, well, you could always just go to assessment anyway. See, in our denomination, before you go plant a church, they send you to assessment, which is a five-day-long investigation of who you are, basically. They get references for you and for your spouse. They look at your personality profile and how it's going to help you or hurt you when it comes to planning a church. They look at your experience. They get people to actually counsel you on the way that you and your spouse fight and talk about how that's going to affect it. They have you present potential church planning scenarios in front of everybody. You have to preach in front of all these people. The whole time you are grading the other people going through assessment while being assessed by veteran church planners. It's really, really intense. And so when he suggested this, I was like, aha, I figured it out. And I came up with this plan. We'll go to assessment and they'll say, no, 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 no. You are not a church planter, but you should be a fill in the blank, right? My plan was to go through this process and have them tell me what I was supposed to do with the rest of my life. So you can imagine my surprise after five days when we sit down with the assessors and they go, we think you should plant a church. (laughs) It was ridiculous, the, the plan that I had just completely uh, foiled, but uh, God worked his plan out in a way that I wasn't expecting, right? I wanted to control the outcome of my seminary and, and professional career by having people tell me what to do. Um, the control that I was seeking was completely undermined because God was in control. And we see the same thing at work in this passage this morning. The plans of the good characters the plans of the bad characters. Both the villain and the heroine are having, they create these plans in order to control the narrative of history. 
But the reality is control is just outside of their grasp. And God reminds us in subtle and surprising ways that He is in control, constantly pushing forward His agenda for restoration and redemption of His people. See, we plan for control, but God uses ordinary things to reverse suffering. That's what we're going to look at this morning. We plan for control. God uses ordinary things to reverse suffering. So let's start by looking at how we plan for control. In chapter 5, both Haman and Esther have elaborate plans in order to control the king and the outcome for the Jews. Right? Esther's plan is somewhat like a chess grandmaster strategy. Haman's is more American gladiators, if you're picking up what I'm putting down. See, after fasting for three days and three nights, Esther decides she's going to go to the king, and she puts on, the, the passage tells us, her royal robes. But it doesn't tell us purposefully that she changes her appearance. Right? So she dresses in her royal robes, but she goes still bearing the effects of three days and nights without food and water. Maybe this is uh, an attempt for her to garner some concern from the king. Why do you look this way? Maybe she's trying to draw his sympathy after not having seen him for 30 days. Whatever it is, this is part of Esther's plan. And we see that she sticks to this plan throughout her engagement. The king extends the golden scepter and tells her that she has found favor in his sight. And he She comes forth and he says, what do you want? In verse 3, what is your request? It shall be given to you, even to the half of my kingdom. Now, he's not actually offering her half of his kingdom, but what he's saying is, I'm willing to be super generous to you. Whatever you want, I'm willing to give to you. Now, it's at this point that you and I probably would say, great, I'm so glad you offered. You know how you were going to kill Mordecai and all the Jews? Can you just not do that? That would be great. But instead, Esther sticks to the plan. She says, if I found favor with you, would you come to a feast that I'm going to prepare for you and bring Haman as well? So they come to the feast, and after they've eaten, they've had some to drink. Not only is the king extend his generosity again, but now he's drunk, right? If there ever was a time for her to say, please don't kill the Jews, it's when the king is generous and drunk. But she sticks to the plan, and she says, if you like what's going on here, Come back tomorrow, I'm going to prepare another feast, bring Haman, and then I'll tell you what it is I want to ask of you. She sticks to this calculated, regimented, crafty plan so that she can control the king's decision. If she's done all this stuff for the king, she's buttered him up in all this way, she's already found favor with him. Once she asks for him not to kill the Jews, he'll have to say yes. Mordecai, or excuse me, Haman leaves this first feast super happy. He's had a lot to eat. He's had a lot to drink. He passes Mordecai in the street. Now, if you remember, Mordecai put on sackcloth and ashes when he found out that the Jews were going to be exterminated. So here he is at the gate, not having eaten or drank anything for three days, and he doesn't even look up at Haman. He doesn't even acknowledge Haman's existence, and this infuriates him once again. He goes from being exceedingly joyous to being exceedingly angry. And he goes home, calls his friends together, his wife Zeresh, and he starts to list all the great things about being Haman. His money, his children, his status in the kingdom, the fact that the king has promoted him. 
But verse 13, all of this is worth nothing to me, he says, so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. He is so blindly furiated that when his friends and his wife suggest something to him, it becomes his plan. They say, you're going to this feast with the king tomorrow. Why not just build a gallows and tell the king to kill Mordecai on it? And they present it in an outlandish way. Make it 50 cubits high. This is 75 feet in the air. And most commentators think that it's not actually a gallows like you would draw if you were going to play hangman, but it's more of a spear or a spike that they're going to impale Mordecai on. 75 feet in the air. Right? His plan is all about power and intimidation. I will prove not only to Mordecai that I'm the one in charge, but I'll prove to everybody else that I really am worthy of respect. Look at what will happen to you if you don't acknowledge me. His plan to control Mordecai and the rest of the people of Persia comes down to power. Completely different than Esther's plan, but with the same goal. Control. We plan to make control of our lives, to take control of our lives. We make our plans in order to secure the outcomes we want or to keep away the things that we don't want in our lives. And what happens is we trick ourselves into believing we are in control. If things in our life are going according to plan, it's because we planned them that way. And if things are starting to unravel, we just need a new plan, right? We just change the way that we're doing things and everything will be okay. The night before I was going to propose to Nicole, I was driving from Gainesville, Florida to Atlanta, Georgia, and I had an elaborate plan. I had already talked to her parents. I had talked to her roommate. Her roommate was in on it. Her boss at work was in on it. This was a Thursday night. She had to go to work on Friday. Her boss was in on the plan. I talked to a friend of mine, had a place to stay in Atlanta. I talked to some of her friends who were traveling through Atlanta to go to a football game the following day on Saturday. Everybody was in on this plan. I'm driving up to Atlanta. It's going to be great. Then I get a phone call, and it's Nicole. And she says, you know what? I just feel like we haven't seen each other in a while, and things have been so hectic lately. I packed a bag. I'm going to take it to work tomorrow. I'm going to leave after lunch, and I'm going to drive to Gainesville so we can spend the weekend together. Whip the car over to the side of 75, and I'm like, no, 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 no. You can't do that. But of course, I can't give away all this elaborate plan, so I had to come up with a new plan right? I had to try and figure out a way to convince her not only not to come down, but also not to take the bag to work with her. So I'm like, you know, uh, do you have enough vacation time to take half a day? Um, I have a really busy weekend. This might not work out for you. Don't you have some responsibilities at church on Sunday? Uh, She didn't. I had already gotten her out of those. So like I was scrambling because I sensed that I was losing control of the situation, right? So I lost the control and I had to come up with new plans, I had already made the elaborate plan. Now I had to go with the emotional plan. How am I going to get this to work? See, we know and can sense when we're losing control, we value our planning so much that we have to scramble to make new plans. Two people in this scenario have differing plans, both seeking for control, and they're on a collision course. The night between these two feasts is super tense, literally, literally speaking. Esther's plan Haman's plan. Who is in control? That's the question that we're left with. Whose plan is going to win out? Is Esther going to save her people? Is Haman going to kill Mordecai? Who is in control? And of course, that question ignores the reality that neither of them are in control. 
that God is the one in control, not just of this situation, but in all of history. And then we see him come in next. Say, God uses ordinary things. Let's start of chapter 6. On that night, the king could not sleep, and he gave orders to bring the book of memorable deeds, the chronicles, and they were read before the king. And it was found written how Mordecai had told about Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold and who had sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And the king said, what honor or distinction has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? The king's young men who attended him said, nothing has been done for him. Seriously? This is what happens next? After chapter after chapter of the author building this tension, five years of Haman planning to kill the Jews, her whole life Esther has distanced herself from her Jewish heritage, embraced her Persianness, and finally, uh, two chapters ago, she's realized, this is my time, I need to do something about this. She's embraced her Jewishness. The, the author has built up all of this tension, and this is what happens next? The king can't sleep? I mean, come on. That's like reading seven Harry Potter books or watching eight Harry Potter movies where Voldemort and Harry are always at each other. Voldemort's trying to kill Harry. Harry realizes, I'm going to have to stand up to him eventually. He learns and he grows in his abilities. And they come to a face-to-face showdown, and Harry sneezes and accidentally zaps Voldemort. (laughs) It would be such a letdown. Or at least just completely different than you were expecting. That's the way that the author has written this. The original audience, us, we're supposed to look at this and go, what's going on here? Is this a, a plot twist of some kind? What's happening? The reality is that the author is showing us that there is a third plan at work, starkly different, completely deeper and greater. Now, maybe Haman and Esther and Mordecai, the, the historical figures, couldn't see this deeper plan at work. But for us, the audience, we know that it was no accident that that night the king could not sleep. He had every reason to go to sleep. He had just had a fantastic feast. He should be food comed by now. He had had a lot to drink. He should be passed out by now. And it was just a coincidence, if you will, that he could not sleep. We know that it's too much of a coincidence to just be coincidence. It was no accident that in his sleeplessness he called for the book of good deeds. It was no accident that the deed that was read was that of Mordecai's. It was no accident. God's providential plan was at work in the king's room that night. And it wasn't in some big miraculous way. He didn't send an angel to speak to King Ahasuerus like he did to Mary and Elizabeth and Joseph. Right? He didn't even appear like a, a human hand riding in the plaster like he had to the pagan king Belshazzar the night that the Medes came in and took over Babylon. No, he shows up with plain old insomnia. God uses very human things, things like traffic and friendship, heartburn and hunger, even sleeplessness to carry out his plans for his people. And if we're being honest with ourselves, that's somewhat disappointing because we want God to show up big. We want the God who parted the Red Sea, who followed Israel as a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. We want him to show up and miraculously heal, heal our friends and family. 
We want him to send a, a bolt of lightning or something and change someone's wayward path. We want him to exact justice upon those who are persecuting us. We want him to suddenly remove the sin patterns of our lives. But very human, very ordinary ways, that's slow. It's tedious. And sometimes it feels like it's just not enough. So it kicks in our desire to control. We start to make more plans. How can we get what we want? But hopefully, through this book, the story of Esther, hopefully God working in plain, ordinary, silent ways is encouraging in the sense that He doesn't need to work miracles in your life in order to bring about the redemption and restoration He has planned for you. Hopefully, it's encouraging to know that if you're not seeing miracles, if puddles aren't suddenly parting in half, if God isn't lighting the bush outside your front door on fire and speaking to you, that doesn't mean He's not at work. It doesn't mean that He's left you. Hopefully, we can see that God uses things like your plain everyday conversations with your coworkers, with your day-to-day schedule, with the same fight you have with your spouse every week. He uses those ordinary, somewhat dull, somewhat mundane things. This is what God does. And hopefully He encourages us in that. Not just dull and mundane and everyday things, but even our own sin. God can use sin to work His own plan in our lives. Sins like pride. We see that on display next. The king has just been read this book of deeds, asked what has been done for Mordecai. The people answer nothing. Chapter 6, verse 4, the king said, who is in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace to speak to the king about having Mordecai hanged on the gallows that he had prepared for him. And the king's young men told him, Haman is there standing in the court. The king said, let him come in. So Haman came in and the king said to him, what should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? And Haman said to himself, who would the king delight to honor more than me? And Haman said to the king, for the man whom the king delights to honor, let royal robes be brought, which the king has worn, and the horse that the king has ridden, and on whose head a royal crown is set. And let the robes and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble officials. Let them dress the man whom the king delights to honor, and let them lead him on the horse through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus it shall be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. The king said to Haman, Hurry, take the robes and the horse, as you have said, and do so to Mordecai the Jew, who sits at the king's gate. Leave out nothing that you have mentioned. Boom! Finally, finally what we're seeing is that God's plan is starting to, to work its way out. But did you notice it's, it's specific? It's not just good things are starting to happen, but in fact, God uses these very ordinary things to reverse all of the bad things and suffering that have done. God uses ordinary things to reverse suffering. Everything that has happened so far in our story is starting to be undone, right? The same events are starting to happen, but they have different outcomes. Esther starts when the queen refuses to see the king in his chamber when he invites her, and the queen is executed. Now, the queen is coming to the king when she hasn't been invited and could potentially be executed. Flipped on its head. 
right? Esther wins the crown because of her beauty and her Persianness, but now she's found power in the king's court because her lack of beauty and her acceptance of her Jewishness. Mordecai, who was forgotten, has suddenly been remembered. Haman was the one who was promoted, and he was lording his promotion over everyone, making them bow down, and now he is humbled and forced to submit to Mordecai and lead him through the square, proclaiming Mordecai's promotion. It is Haman who was dead set on killing Mordecai, and it is Haman who unwittingly, through his own pride, saves Mordecai. God's plan for His people is not just to make good things happen, but to reverse the suffering of His people. As Tolkien put it, redemption looks like making all sad things come untrue. This is God's plan for His people from the beginning. After Adam and Eve sinned, when, they, when all of creation was twisted and corrupted because of our sin, God said, I'm not going to leave it alone, but I'm going to fix it. In talking to the serpent in Genesis 3.15, he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall crush your head. You shall bruise his heel. The imagery that we're given here is of a snake striking out to bite the heel of a human and in doing so exposing its head to be crushed by that same heel. God uses that which is meant for evil in order to bring about good. We saw this in the life of Joseph two summers ago as we were preaching through Genesis. His brothers sell him into slavery in Egypt in order to get rid of him, but then God uses his position in Egypt to save not just his brothers, but all of God's people. God uses ordinary things, like a baby born in Bethlehem, to twist and turn suffering on its head. The people who hated Jesus, who opposed him, thought that killing him and crucifying him would silence him, would help them regain their control. But God uses that in order to set his people free. He does these order, he uses these ordinary things to reverse suffering. Okay, I get it. You might be thinking to yourself, God is always at work, even if it seems like he's not there, even if he's quiet, and it's his plan, he's in control, so I just shouldn't make plans, right? I should just let God do his thing, and I'm just going to, you know, go with the flow, whatever God wants to happen. That's not what we're saying. That's not what we see in Scripture. What we are saying is that following Jesus puts us in this weird place of tension. There's a difference between making plans to gain control and making plans realizing we're not in control. And there's no easy way to describe that. Just to know that God is the one who is controlling history, and He invites us to walk with Him down the road of our lives as He directs us. A great example of this is Eric Little, who was a, a man who was born in, to Scottish missionaries in China in the early 1900s. And his family returned uh, to Scotland where he was raised and grew up, but they always knew that their family was destined to be uh, missionaries to China. And they knew that Eric, in particular, was meant to go back to China, but there was a problem. Eric was fast, like freaky fast. And so the, the British Olympic team wanted him to come and run uh, under the, the British Isles flag in the 1924 Olympics, Summer Olympics in Paris. And his parents and his family and his sister, everyone was saying, no, 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 you're not a runner. You're a missionary. God's plan for you is to go to China. 
And he writes about this in his book and in the biographies about him. And there's also a great scene in the movie Chariots of Fire, if you have seen it, where he's talking with his sister out on the mountainside. Whether it happened on the mountainside or not, that's not important. But it sets a great dramatic uh, scene for this conversation. And he says, guess what? The missionary agency has accepted me to go to China. And she's super excited. She's, she's cheering because he's finally following God's plan for his life. And then he says, but I have a lot of running to do first. He says, I believe that God made me for a purpose, for China, but he also made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. To give that up would be to hold him in contempt. We may think we know God's plan for our lives. Other people may think they know God's plans for our lives. And if we are believing that we are in control of working that out, we start making plans. We know what we need to do because we're in control of how it turns out. But the truth is, God gives us specific hints and clues, feeling his pleasure as we use our gifts that he's given us feeling pain as we stray from what He has called us to do. We are not in control of our lives. God is in control, but He calls us to plan, to walk towards Him, trusting that if they fail or if they succeed, it's because of Him, not because of us. See, God uses these mundane, these broken things to undo brokenness. He uses boring, normal, broken people to undo broken people. Other people and ourselves, he uses us to repair and reverse the curse on his creation. And he invites you to follow him into the tension of planning, but not being in control. It's a hard place to be, but that's why he gives us his word. That's why he gives us his family, the church, to walk together towards him, to figure out what it looks like to plan, but let go of control. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you promise to never leave or forsake us. You promise that uh, what you have started, you will complete. You tell us in your word that because you began the good work in us, you will carry it on to completion. We pray that we would trust you in it, that we would walk the line between knowing that you're in control and orchestrating everything and planning and moving forward and following you. God, it's not easy. It's confusing. It's hard. But we we pray that you would give us the strength to pursue you. Give us uh, the, the strength to fail and know that you're still in control. You're still working out your promise. You will bring us home. We thank you for your son who secured it and made that way possible for us. We pray in his name. Amen.